He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munson's, want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their world. So we're going to start this time with Case. I'm excited for uh, my longtime pal, Dan Craig, to be joining us on this episode. And uh, I'm excited to talk about Steve Buscemi and what I would argue Con Air's Maybe the greatest movie of all time, so I can't wait to talk about that. Other than that, I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. I think you mispronounced Armageddon, but we'll give you a pass. No, I didn't. That's okay. I'm excited to see DC as well. Always a pleasure with that man. And our Brazil numbers will go back up. It's been a long time since we were topping the charts in Brazil. It's good to get him back. <laughs> all right, James. Yeah, so uh, my New Year's resolution was to lose weight and get in shape, and I'm um, off to a blazing start because of this one trick that personal uh, trainers hate, and that's get violently ill from a stomach bug you get from your daughter and be bedridden for days. I lost about seven, eight pounds in nice. 48 hours. Congratulations. Yeah. Best I've looked in years, guys. I got to be honest. Yeah, you make it sound like it's a bad thing. I, I, I don't like your tone. I looked like Doc Holliday in Tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> Fever dreams. And I was like, is it day or night? What time is it? Am I hungry or thirsty or cold or hot? For her, it was like she needed to be cuddled and she threw up a couple times. For me, it's like, is this, is this it? Am I about to die? Is this the end of the game? Yeah, she's slowly becoming my mortal enemy because she keeps canceling all of your holiday gatherings. The next party Kate and I host, we're going to have like Halloween decorations and New Year's decorations, and it's going to be like St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> <laughs> to Aubrey. This is a great time. End of the year movie stuff. So movie catch-up stuff. Top 10 lists, all that. Award season. I undeniably love this i'm unashamed i love award season but really i'm here to give the people what they want my one semester long film studies class that all of you guys thought was over no i've rigged the system i turned creative writing into a film criticism class and kept almost every student that was in the last class in this class we've begun film criticism i like it slash creative writing nice so we'll still be watching movies and i'm going to teach them how to write criticism we started by listening to podcasts on criticism and making observations. So, guys, be on your best behavior. <laughs> no, <laughs> only long before we get here. Oh, remember, these are all this. Almost every kid is the same kid. There's like five new ones. I asked them, "What's your the best movie you watched over break? Worst movie you watched over break? Best movie you've ever seen? Worst movie you've ever seen?" And these little bastards, almost every single one of them put the worst movie they saw was the one that I showed them. Jackie. It was either Jackie or There Will Be Blood. <laughs> and I just kept reading these papers in and I was just, how dare you? How dare you? I stopped reading them at one point, <laughs> put the papers down and said, why are you guys trying to hurt me? Why are you the way you are? I'm a person too, damn it. <laughs> I got feelings. They said, show us better movies. 
I see a contest. I think the top student in your class gets to be a guest. Ooh. No, we'll have we'll let them record something we can put on that. We're not they don't need to be here for the full time. That's yeah, that's not. true. That's fair. I just want to say thank you to all of you and your understanding for moving this to 48 hours after the national championship for the my Michigan Wolverines. And I'm uh, still riding a high right now. Did we cheat? I don't know. Who knows? We're going to enjoy our name being on that trophy for a little bit. The state of Michigan has not been this pumped about football in a long time. So we're in. My dad like was texting me like a 13 year old boy the other day, so giddy about what's going on. So I don't. We don't know how to handle our emotions at all right now. I've been hearing about this nonstop since June. <laughs> I've heard about Lions Twitter. I've heard about Lions like Lions group chats with friends. I've I've been I've been all in. I'm a supporter. I want my friends' teams to do well, unless my friends. Like the Broncos, Chiefs, or Chargers, in which they're not my friends. Raiders fan. So I never have to worry about that. So I'm all I'm all in on the Lions. Go Lions. There's a plus side to us moving this, and it relates to the episode tonight. 25 years ago, tonight was the debut episode of a TV show that we will talk about later. Oh, teaser. All right. Well, let's hold that. That's a good transition here. Originally, we were going to have Sam Phillips here as our guest. Sam was originally with us for a couple episodes before, but he couldn't join. He had a thing come up with his son, and uh, they just had to take advantage of the opportunity. So Dan Craig's going to pop in as a kind of last-second-ass guest within the last 48 hours. He's a high school English and film teacher and has the dubious distinction of knowing Craig Case for the past 20-plus years. Having joined us previously for Chris O'Dowd, Tim Roth, Willem Dafoe, David Spade, Maggie Smith, and William Atherton, he becomes the first seven-time guest Munson. Excited to have Dan. He's got some things going on in his life, so he'll jump on at some point in the recording, and we'll welcome him with open arms. I've been friends with Dan Craig over half of my life at this point. I'm fired up about that. Let's harness that and go into a birthday segment. How about that? Birthdays, January 18th. Let me tell y'all, January 18th is jam-packed with birthday options, so picking three was a challenge, but I think I picked three pretty good ones here. So. First and foremost, we're going to go with Kevin Costner, Mr. Waterworld himself, Mr. In All the Baseball Movies, Mr. Draft Day, Mr. Pretty Damn Good Actor. How old is Kevin Costner? Hmm. Yellowstone. Kevin Costner is a handsome 62. 70. 74. Oh, boy. I don't like where my face is playing my game. Kevin Costner is turning a fresh 74 years old. So Case on the dot. Oh my God. Case is playing my game. I cannot believe Kevin Costner's turning 74. It's insane. Looks great. I know. Yeah. Shout out to KC. Next up, Dave Bautista. Ooh. Obviously started in the, the wrestling world, but has become a pretty darn good actor, if I could say so myself. Obviously pretty well known for being Drax, but I think he's got a pretty, like, buttoning acting career i agree yeah he makes good choices he does the level of respect he has a, as an actor i think is the level of respect the rock wishes he had mm-hmm. uh, i bet dave would like to trade bank accounts but <laughs> maybe i think he's very good for someone who was originally a wrestler 50 aubrey says 50 45 52 dave bautista another surprising number is turning 55 so case wins again Back to back. Ace. Wanted to be right on. Bautista's 55? Yeah. Holy shit. Happy birthday to him. That's a wrestler thing. If So I, someone who's watched wrestling for a long time, if you there's any wrestler that you're ever interested in, look them up. I promise you they're 
almost every time they'll be 10 years older than you think they are. And like a good six inches taller than you think they are. <laughs> yeah. All right, last one for today before I read the honorable mentions. We have Jason Siegel. <laughs> Very funny guys in a lot of movies we've talked about recently. Forgetting Sarah Marshall is the one that comes to, to mind immediately. What else has Jason been in that we love? He's in uh, Shrinking on Apple TV, which is good. End of the Tour? Isn't that him and Jesse Eisenberg? Oh, yeah. End of the Tour. Yep. Good film. Good movie. Yep. Sex Tape? Not a good one. Bad Teacher? How I Met Your Mother? Yeah, I was about to say How I Met Your Mother is probably the big one he's known for. So how old is Jason Siegel? Give me 48. 45. 49. All right. You're all over. So I'm going to give you another opportunity to guess. Ooh. Oh, my God. 40. 44. I'm going to go down a year. That's the right play. 43? Damn it, Jason. <laughs> Jason Siegel's turning 44. So James on the dot. Smart move. Damn. Oh, nice. It's the right play. Tried to trick me, Kyle. He's been in the game a long time. That's, that's impressive. Uh-huh. But just to give you an idea of some of the other names, Mark Rylance's birthday is January 18th. Cary Grant. Yo, 100. Uh, Danny Kay. Paul Freeman. And MC Ganey all have birthdays on January 18th. Another Con Air actor. And my brother, Brian. <laughs> Happy birthday, Brian. Happy birthday, Brian. I will say I like that Kyle uh, name-dropped Cary Grant, who is dead. But if he was alive today, he'd be turning 120. <laughs> so is Car- I think so is Danny <laughs> Kay. Both of them dead. Those are big fucking names, man. I never would have guessed 120. He said Cary Grant's name, and I go, are we, do we allowed to do dead people in this? <laughs> I was going to say, I, was like, I don't know if it counts as a birthday anymore if the guy's been dead for 40 years. Birthday, man. <laughs> Happy birthday to them and everybody else. We're at episode 95. Uh, the five actors we threw onto the wheel. It was an all-dude edition of the wheel. We had Frankie Faison, Keenan Ivory Wayans, Benedict Cumberbatch. Michael Kenneth Williams, but it doesn't matter because the wheel picked the uh, the guy from Staten Island, Steve Buscemi. It's not from Staten Island. I know, and just... don't disrespect my islands. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's born in Brooklyn, you know, just so we're on the same page. Which is Long Island. Steve has 176 acting credits, so he's done a shit ton in his career. He's directed 18 different times, whether that was TV or film or shorts. He's got 14 producing credits, and he's got three writing credits, so. Steve Buscemi is quite prolific since he started his career. But before we get into all those details, we always start with a little actor trivia to see if James can stump us Fast and Furious style. Obviously, you guys are part of the initiated, but to Aubrey's students and new listeners at home, what I do here is I'm going to read three facts off about Steve Buscemi. Two of them are going to be true. One of them is not actually going to be true about Steve, but is going to be true about one of the illustrious cast members of the Fast and the Furious franchise. The guys here are going to have to guess which one that is. Fact number one, was jumped at a bar as part of a gang initiation, resulting in glass being smashed over his head, which required 140 stitches in his face. Fact number two, is attributed to being the inspiration behind three-time Grammy Award-winning two-time platinum musician... Alicia Beth Moore's stage name. Alicia is better known as Pink. Fact number three. Anonymously worked 12-hour shifts for a week straight, digging through rubble looking for missing first responders immediately following the September 11th terrorist attacks. Mm. Wow. These are awesome. I don't know if number two is true, but I think that's such a fascinating fact. I feel like number two is true because... Mr. Pink. She's weird enough for that to make sense. Could be Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Pink. I'm going with number one. 
And that is that is Tyrese. And I'm not even doing my rapper thing, even though I'm still doing my rapper thing. <laughs> he was jumped in the gang. That could that could be real. Like I would believe that. I got a slightly different take this week. I think the lie is number one also, but it's about the birthday boy Dave Bautista, who actually turned down a spot in the Fast and Furious franchise because he quote wasn't interested. <laughs> Case is on fire today. That's the way to play the game. I feel like James would do that. Uh-huh. I do too. Number one, Batista. Part of me thinks this is an M- one of these is an MC Jin thing because of the last episode. He was like, I gotta squeeze in some MC. So maybe, but I I think it's gotta be State Farm commercial star Luda. Oh yeah. Because I saw that commercial 25 minutes ago before we started uh this episode. I gotta go with fact one as well. I think Luda might have might have had a rough and tumble beginning. 440 citrus. Luda. Isn't that the plot of Hustle and Flow? You mean Whoop That Trick? Great song. <laughs> Everyone guessed fact number one, so I will leave that, and I'll start with fact number three. Anonymously worked 12-hour shifts for a week straight, digging through rubble, looking for missing first responders immediately following the September 11th terrorist attacks. So prior to being an actor, uh, Buscemi was actually a New York City firefighter. And when September 11th happened, he showed up to his old firehouse the day after, and uh, he volunteered to, one, help look for his former comrades, but two, to show support in any way he could. He's actually so supportive of firefighters that he's been arrested twice protesting in support of New York City firefighters, and he's still a volunteer firefighter to this day. No one guessed fact number two, which is that he's attributed with the inspiration behind three-time Grammy Award-winning two-time platinum musician Alicia Beth Moore's stage name. Alicia is better known as Pink. That's true. A future music sensation, Alicia, a.k.a. Pink, watched Reservoir Dogs with her friends, and they all agreed that her personality was very similar to the character Mr. Pink, which was played by Steve Buscemi. They also thought it was really funny irony because she's a tomboy, and pink is such a feminine color that the nickname stuck. <laughs> and then she's like, I guess that'll just be my name because that's what my best friends call me. That's the coolest fact you've had in a long time. Isn't that nuts? So cool. It's so cool. I love that. Fact number one, which everyone guessed, he was jumped at a bar as part of a gang re- initiation resulting in glass being smashed over his head, which required 140 stitches in his face. Well, in April of 2001... Buscemi was stabbed in the throat, head, and arm during a barroom brawl in Wilmington, North Carolina, while filming the movie A Domestic Disturbance with Vince Vaughn. Vaughn was also included in the barroom brawl and was arrested for refusing to disperse when ordered by the police, and he was eventually charged with misdemeanor assault for beating up the person who stabbed Buscemi in the face and the neck. So Buscemi was cut deep to the face, left a noticeable scar on his face, However, no glass was smashed over his head because unlike that, what happened to Steve, which is horrific, uh, it actually happened to Jason Momoa, who famously portrays Dante Reyes in Fast X. He was jumped by a man in a bar trying to be initiated into a gang, which resulted in 140 stitches in his face. Yikes. Like the biggest fucking dude in the bar, huh? What a choice. Yeah. He had to be smaller than right? Of course. <laughs> he had to be. No, I think he was actually pretty huge because that was like right around the time Game of Thrones was around. but. The Buscemi story, dude, is pretty wild. Yeah, it is. Him and Vaughn went to a bar like on their night off from filming. And the way the story was told is this girl comes over and starts talking to Vince Vaughn. Again, in 2001, this is like the peak of Vince Vaughn's starting rise to fame. And then all of a sudden, that girl's 
boyfriend shows up and is like, you hitting on my girl, bro? And Vaughn's like, no, I'm definitely not. And Steve Buscemi tries to de-escalate the situation and kids getting more and more aggressive. And eventually he's like, all right, let's go outside and just relax. And again, he's trying to de-escalate the situation. And the kid pulls a knife and lunges at him and stabs him repeatedly. Vince Vaughn hops in and starts whooping on the kid. The cops come, they separate him. Vaughn is arrested for trying to beat this kid mercilessly. Buscemi's bleeding out. They are able to take him to the emergency room, get him healed up. He ended up being okay, thankfully. But here's the cool part of the story. (laughs) The judge had this kid dead to rights, right? He's obviously guilty. There's a million people who saw this. And as they're going to sentence him, Buscemi sent his lawyer to tell the court that he didn't want the kid to receive a straight active sentence and thought it'd be detrimental to the kid and said, I think the kid has a substance abuse issue and some mental health issues. I'm asking the judge not to send him to prison. And so what the judge did was compromise and sent him to six months of like in, was it like sobriety essentially for him to sober up and like mental testing, six months prison, two years probation. He stabbed him in the throat with a knife, and Buscemi still was like, no, I'll turn the other cheek. It's fine. Crazy. The judge in his sentencing was like, you're lucky that that's who the victim was, because anyone else would want you locked up and the key thrown away. Good dude. Great dude. Yeah. It's going to be a theme this episode, for sure. Thanks, James. <laughs> All right. Case, what do we got for snapshot and box office history? Well, this will probably be the low point of uh, Buscemi's discussion, being that he's done everything right off the screen and on the screen, where he he probably struggles a little bit is in the box office. The most notable parts of his box office snapshot is, I've got about, probably about 68 available films that have complete box office information. I have 20 that's missing box office information. And of the 68 I have, he's, he's been in films that, 30 different films that have lost money which is not a good ratio. However, in total box office, he comes in at 11, Hmm. and I'm missing 20 films. (laughs) Potentially, he could be a top five performer if we had a complete snapshot. But what kills him is the amount of movies that he that lost money. Here are the overall numbers. He has the 23rd largest budget we looked at. Average budget is $40.3 million, which ranks 50th. He's 11th in total box office, like I said. 59th in critic ranking, which is a 57.9. 41st in fan ranking, which is 59 flat. And then in our two box office metrics, he comes in at 82 and 63. And his star meter ranking is 59th. Overall, our boy comes in a lot lower than I was hoping he would, but kind of where I thought he would. And he comes in ranked 64 out of 95. That is so much lower than I thought it would be. It feels kind of right to me. Not trying to be negative, but it just, based off the stuff that kind of goes on there, it kind of makes sense. When it comes to box office scores, like he's in a lot of the Happy Madison movies and those, despite being panned usually by critics, usually do pretty well. Mm -hmm. And then he's in a bunch of like 90s, huge box office hits. And so to be that low, it's a little shocking. We talked about Seymour Cassell, right? They've got a similar career, man. He has a lot of mid-major roles in independent movies. Yeah. But that's what hurt Seymour Cassell as well in the box office metrics. Thanks, Case. Yeah, you bet. All right, well, let's paint a picture of Steve Buscemi. First major role we're going to talk about is in 1986. So the pre-1986 early days of Steve Buscemi. So he's born in 1957 in Brooklyn. 
there I couldn't find a ton of stuff from his like early days that were seemed interesting. It was like pretty typical like young kid going to school, parents are normal semi normal humans. Mm-hmm. Humble beginnings in a lot of ways. In high school he wrestled and also joined a drama troupe. So that's when he started doing his acting work. And he briefly attended Nassau Community College before he transferred to the Lee Strasberg Institute in Manhattan. The weight that he wrestled at was 105 pounds, which is the weight that I wrestled at before I hit puberty. And <laughs> once I hit puberty, I had to quit wrestling because uh, it's a lot easier to kind of control an eighth grader when at 105 pounds. But once you're at like 170, you're actually wrestling like men that are 200 pounds that cut weight to 170. And I called it quits immediately. That is the least surprising thing for him and the most surprising <laughs> thing for you. <laughs> yeah, it was a late bloomer. That's right. I mean, he's always been a skinny, scrawny guy on screen, so that doesn't shock me in the yeah. least that he was a little string bean of a, a teenager. Mm-hmm. To James' point earlier, you talked about he was a New York City firefighter from 1980 to 1984, so between the ages of, what, 23 and 27. But he didn't do his first film until 1985, so that makes him, what, 27, 28 years old is when he did his first acting gig. And that was in a, a film called The Way It Is. He played two different characters, small. Obviously a very small role in 1985. Going back, what's crazy about him being a firefighter, he's wiry. I, you don't see a lot of wiry firefighters. It's, it's impressive that he was able to pull that off, being as, as thin and as, as wiry as he is. <laughs> the only thing I could say about our best offensive weapon is he's wiry. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> wiry. Wiry. <laughs> I'm wary. He tells a funny story about how he left being a firefighter to become an actor and how all of his firefighter buddies, like, you hang out pretty much all day, right? And so other than, you know, when you're actually fighting fires, it's like you're kind of just like shooting the shit, doing chores, working out. It's like, and you're in your own world. And when I told him I was quitting to become an actor, immediately they're like, Hey, like if you need any money, let us know. Like we know, you know, you're going to be a struggling actor. We'll do whatever we can to take care of you. It's like, and until I got my first role and they saw my name in the newspaper and immediately they rescinded all those offers. And they're like, can you, did you see Steve? He made it. He's famous. And he's like, I didn't have the heart to tell him like, I got paid like $40 for that role. Like I definitely need couches (laughs) to sleep on. Like I have not made it. He's like, but because they're in their own world, they're like, yeah, he's an actor. He's super famous now. Like I was not super famous. That was not what was happening. (laughs) I don't think the way it is was quite the rocket ship to stardom. He might've wanted it to be. (laughs) No. Same year, he did a short called Tommy's in 1985, but he, not that it was like huge, huge profile, but what we're going to call his first major role was in 1986's Parting Glances. He played Nick in case says this one. Parting Glances is a 1986 American drama. A couple of weeks ago when Laura was on, I think, was that was the episode, right, Kyle, where we were talking about the fil- the movie from a film class. Yep. This had that kind of feel. Yeah, I don't know what it was, but it, it just had this feel that it was kind of a film project. Buscemi, who, in my opinion, is the central figure in this movie. The whole story revolves around him, and he's kind of the the central character that connects a lot of the other characters. It's essentially about a guy in the mid-80s. Keep in mind that. That was the a really scary time with AIDS and his character has AIDS. As you go through the movie, it's they kind of portray how certain people are treated. And one scene they're at a party 
And this guy sees him. He hadn't seen him for a while. He's talking to him. He goes, hey, how you doing, Bubba? And they're talking and they're having a great conversation. And then Buscemi's character goes off screen and then another guy comes up and you can tell that he's telling this guy that that he has AIDS. And then when he comes back, he's really cold. And so it kind of showed this really shitty treatment of, of people that had AIDS in the 80s was happening. The big story here is that Buscemi's former lover in this movie is now with another guy. This guy's leaving town for two years. It's a one night in New York type of story where they all go to a party. It's a lot of dialogue. Critics love this movie. And I understand that they loved it because of the message. And I certainly agree with that. But in hindsight, I didn't particularly enjoy watching this movie. I thought it was really hectic. It was very hard to get into any of the characters because it was almost like it was a really well-written story. It was almost like the director was like, hey, just be however you want to be. And then so none of the characters really fit together. I read the synopsis of this movie and I texted the group. Well, it seems like it's going to be a pretty heavy movie. (laughs) And Kyle replied back, yeah, not really. Not nearly as heavy as it reads. <laughs> no, and maybe that's a good thing, right? Especially for when this movie was, because it's also tough critiquing a movie that happened in 1986 about a topic that, I mean, barely anybody talks about that topic anymore. And so it's it's tough to critique that movie. So you really, the message wasn't nearly as powerful now as it was back in the 80s. I thought he was good. He's the only actor of note in the cast, from what I could find. Well, Mimi from uh, the Drew Carey show was in there. Was she? (laughs) Must have missed her. (laughs) For his, like, I guess his second movie ever, it didn't seem like, but again, he he got into the game later, wasn't a 19-year-old kid on screen for the first time, so Mm -hmm. he's a little bit more mature than kind of the typical first role, second role. Yeah, I thought he was good. His was the only character I didn't find exhausting. Yeah. I mean, his character is pretty different. He's just kind of like over the whole experience. But you're right. He's the emotional center of the story. Yeah. Not the worst first major role film I've ever seen, but clearly nowhere near the best. Well, the next big chunk is like probably the most exciting part of talking about Buscemi because the next 15 years before our next review is when his career explodes and it's we get into some really interesting projects. But before that... 1986, he does Miami Weiss, number one new show. Does an episode of that in 86. And then he marries his wife, Joe, uh, in 1987, uh, artist, filmmaker. And they were together until 2019, so over 30 years, until she died of ovarian cancer. He doesn't talk about her much. Buscemi is generally a pretty private guy, mm-hmm. comparatively to some other performers we talk about. So he doesn't talk about his wife's death much, but I mean, just basically says, you know, cancer sucks. Um, but they had a son in, uh, named Lucien in 1990. Every quote I could find him talking about his wife was usually like a funny anecdote and was not addressing how she passed. It was usually in like an interview and him telling a story and wasn't like remarking on the end there. He's basically the exact opposite of a relationship history to like Michael Sheen. Very different, very, very different experiences. So 1988, he was... In a movie called Vibes, he played Fred, uh, a movie alongside Jeff Goldblum. It's a cult classic film. I actually covered it with Dane and Dame's old podcast, Once Upon a Time, CF3. Not a great movie, not good enough for me to rewatch. I don't remember his character in the slightest, but I just remember covering that years ago with them. So a little shout out to the Michaels. Somebody put this in the show notes. 1988, Tales from the Dark Side. Uh, He was in the Bellingham Lot 249 segment. This was a high production kind of an anthology movie. 
and he has a really good segment with Christian Slater. It's pretty entertaining. He brings back to life a mummy. Then this mummy goes out and just starts killing everybody for him. And it's a really good, well-written story. It was relatively enjoyable to watch. I like these anthology shows like Tales from the Crypt and Creep Show and all that stuff. I was always a fan of those. 1989, he was in Lonesome Dove, one of the highest rated like miniseries in television history alongside Angelica Houston. So on the Western side of things. And then he did a, a Woody Allen picture in 1989, one of the million that Rigby likes to remind us of in New York Stories, played Gregory. I just didn't realize Woody Allen made that many damn movies. So it's hard to keep up. The more you learn about Steve Buscemi, you realize he works quite a bit with four filmmakers in particular. And one of them is the Coen brothers. And his first Coen brothers film that he did was Miller's Crossing in 1990 alongside Gabriel Byrne and John Turturro. He played Mink. And if you are a longtime listener to the show, you know that one of the biggest controversies we've had was Warren and Rigby going at it on Miller's Crossing and whether they thought it was a good movie. Because <laughs> Rigby loves Miller's Crossing and Warren was not a huge fan. Buscemi actually has the rare claim that he's actually the one actor that's in more Coen Brothers movies by far than any other actor or actress. That makes sense because in 91, his next film we have listed is Barton Fink. Played Chet, another John Turturro Coen Brothers film of weird off the wall film. John Goodman is the person I always remember from that movie. His his character is just very, very bizarre. Bizarre film in general, but but does a lot with Cohen Brothers there in the early nineties. That next one though, Tarantino, ninety two, uh, Reservoir Dogs. He plays Mr. Pink uh, alongside Tim Roth. And I read that Tarantino actually wrote this part for himself originally. Yeah. And then cast Buscemi to to play that role. And all the roles that I really like Buscemi in it's always the slick talking voice of reason that I love him in. And no role embodies that like this does. And it's the start of the movie when they're sitting around the table talking. And even <laughs> I love the with uh, Tim Roth, right? Yeah. He gets done with his speech about tipping. And even Tim Roth goes, I think I agree with him. I'm going to take my money back. And in an odd way, that whole movie, he's he's really a voice of reason throughout the movie, whether or not you like his reasoning with tipping waitresses or not. I, I love him in this role. I think this is his wheelhouse. I agree. I think he absolutely steals every scene that he's in. This is Tarantino's first movie, and that opening scene with the roundtable dialogue of all these bank robbers, that immediately is just like, comes to a screeching halt when Steve Buscemi explains why he doesn't tip, is so tarantino yeah. that it's crazy that this is his first movie. And I agree. I think the monologue that Buscemi gives is like, you immediately are like, dude, you're such a slime ball, but like, I get your reasoning, but it's like slimy. And I think it's a great way to start that movie. Yeah. This is one of my favorite openings of all time. I think about it constantly. I love this movie. I absolutely adore this movie. And Buscemi is incredible in it. It's one of my favorite roles that he gives. Because a lot of what you guys said, that's he's able to balance that. It's so captivating. And the way he can take Tarantino's dialogue, which is already really thoughtful and like really interesting, I should say, and dynamic, he elevates it in a way that's really compelling. I love this movie. And I would point out, too, that until Reservoir Dogs, I guess Parting Glances, I mean, he has a bigger role in that narrative. But a lot of those other films I just mentioned, even the Coen brothers, Barton Fink, Miller's Crossing, they're small parts. Mm -hmm. they're not top build characters i mean his role is chet and barton fink 
he's like a bellhop. Uh, he's in a couple scenes. I mean, it's pretty minimal. He's got a lot of screen time in Reservoir Dogs. So this is kind of his, it'd be hard to say first major role, because, yeah, he did play such a big role in, in Parting Glances as in an indie film, but this is a meaty one. I also love the irony. We won't talk about it, but in the in Pulp Fiction, he plays Buddy Holly, a waiter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first movie I ever really saw him in. To be honest, I don't know where where you guys all entered in on Buscemi, but that was my first experience with him when I was a uh, sophomore in high school. I never looked back. He was awesome. He like blows everyone off the screen when he's on in that movie. You agreed with like the sentiment of all of us, pretty much. That's like exactly what we were all saying. Yeah, <laughs> from his first monologue, you know about tipping and everything he says there. Like he just, he just blew. And it's not hard. It's not easy to do. Like you got Madsen, you got Roth, you got Keitel, like everybody's batting a thousand, but he's incredible in that movie. Like I said, he blows everybody off the screen. I did not see it in, in 92. Cause I was four and my parents wouldn't let me watch uh, <laughs> reservoir dogs. So James's parents probably took him to it. I was about to say it, James's mom took him to the picture. <laughs> I don't know what my first uh, Buscemi movie was, but I do know that I very much saw that movie way too young. <laughs> I didn't see it at four, I assure you, but I definitely, definitely saw it way too young. Oh, four seems like the right age. Well, you know what you do when you, you're in Tarantino's first film and you're just riding that high as your career skyrockets, you take your talents to the adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon for a couple episodes. That is what you do. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic right now, but that show was a lot of fun. I used to watch it too. That's why when I saw it, I was like, I do not remember him at all. No, not a chance. Danny Tamarelli. Yeah, I remember Danny, and I remember what his older brother looked like, but I don't remember what his name was. The older brother was in Home Alone. He's one of the siblings in Home Alone. That's the only other thing I remember the kid from. He's, a, he's also one of the cops in, uh, from the bad police station in Super Troopers. Well, same year, he gets his first ever lead role in a film. And that is a movie we gushed about in the Seymour Cassell episode. And that's In the Soup. He plays Adolfo. There's very few times when we have a movie that everybody has seen in prep and everyone collectively adored. So you should definitely go check out that movie. Seymour Cassell is so captivating in that film. Yeah. It's all from Steve Buscemi's character's narrative point of view. But you should definitely go listen to that episode if you want a, a deeper dive. Buscemi alone with the scenes where he's recording those, what was it, video dating? Yep. <laughs> it's awkward. Watching those scenes is worth the watch alone. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think Sam Rockwell's in that too. I think he has a small part as well. Definitely worth checking out, but his first lead role on film. He also makes his first appearance on SNL in 1994. Also appears again in 2000, case you're a resident SNL expert. Uh, anything that stood out from his his appearances? He may have had a, a coaching one, but I'm trying to remember if he did any of those high-profile casting tapes where they would do like famous actors doing Star Wars. I'm sure he was great, especially being a New Yorker. Man, I bet he rocked it. Doesn't he do one of the Bill Brasky skits with Alec Baldwin? <laughs> where they're all sitting around the bar and like, Bill Brasky! Like, I want to say he's in one of those. I think he does, and I'm sure he kills it. And for those that don't know what it is, it's these guys sitting around the tables getting wasted. And they'll just tell the most outlandish story about something that happened. And it always ends up coming back to, you know who it was? Bill Brasky. <laughs> and then they do a bill. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah, 
want to say he's in one of those. I think you're right. I think he showed up on SNL because of his role in 94's Airheads. He played Rex, a movie that I rewatched. I forgot how much I enjoyed Airheads. It's dumb, but it's a it's a good time. And he is, how would you describe his character in that film? He is kind of the antagonizer of the group of the three of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's the one who, who basically is like, we're taking fake guns with us. So he is 100% the problem. <laughs> I always get thrown off by this movie, which probably better now than it was then. I always get thrown off, though, because I feel like they were trying to make Adam Sandler like a, a, a sex symbol in this movie. <laughs> they were. Yep, he's supposed to be a little bit of a womanizer. That was not the direction his career went after this. And so I, I always get taken aback by that. But he's just this slick-talking fun to listen to delivers lines great it's it's a fun role 95 he plays nick in living in oblivion an indie film about an indie film set where everything goes incredibly wrong from how the actors are treated to the smallest production issues possible it is a very very highly rated indie film i found it thoroughly enjoyable and he nails it as the director who slowly is losing his damn mind as everything goes wrong around him. Highly, highly recommend. There's a whole dream sequence at the, the start about how a film set can get just be an absolute train wreck, and then it continues to be a train wreck when he gets to the set itself. So it's usually pretty well reviewed because of how accurately it portrays the chaos on movie sets. So if you're into that kind of thing, I highly recommend checking it out. And Buscemi is the lead in that one. But 95... Desperado, he plays Buscemi alongside Danny Trejo. Danny Trejo, the uh, the knife-throwing assassin. Man, does he have an entrance in that film, eh? Hey, Case? So I worked at the theater when this came out. There was two scenes that we had timed that you'd go watch. And this was, this was always one of them. And you just go in there, and I just love his ability to make these people interested in a story that he's he's clearly got self-interest in telling and no one's listening to him it's just great cheech goes he goes yeah you got any beer here and he goes oh i got his piss warm whatever he says he goes oh that's my brand (laughs) chongo piss warm chongo he goes, oh, that's my brand (laughs) biggest mexican you've ever seen oh yeah that's a great line in walks the biggest fucking Mexican I've ever seen. And it's how it starts the movie, right? So he's in two iconic scenes starting a movie. Yeah, this movie's wild. I watched this one for the first time. I don't really know why I watched it, but I did. Oh, I'm glad you did. It's a fun movie for sure. It's crazy. It's like everything that a 90s action movie is supposed to be. Completely absurd. Uh, the time period is ambiguous. Are they in a Western? Is it, is it the 90s? I have no really. I have no idea, actually. Buscemi's awesome. Every time he's on screen, the movie's probably at its best, or at least its second best, because Selma Hayek is in this movie. He's just a lot of fun. (laughs) He's a lot of fun. That opening scene is great. I mean, the movie's solid. It's a movie that if you like 90s action movies, you like that kind of thing, this movie is right up that alley. If you don't, then stay as far away from this movie as possible. (laughs) I think why this movie is good, even though it's so wild, it's almost cartoonish in terms of the action and and the fight scenes. But, man, it just leans into it. And Rodriguez does a great job of, uh, of making this thing come together with that theme. Well, and thanks for pointing that out, Case, because that's another filmmaker that he works a ton with in his career, and that's Robert Rodriguez in a variety. The more you know about Robert Rodriguez, you know that he's doing films like this, and then he does all the Spy Kids films. And so he does yeah. very different audiences. 
super interesting filmmaker. Yes, very. Yeah. That's the third big one here. And I'm, if it's okay, I'm going to name the fourth one because I almost forgot this film in the show notes. And that is Billy Madison, 1995. Oh, yeah. When Billy Madison calls Steve Buscemi, who is the guy he bullied in high school, to apologize to him. <laughs> he proceeds after he hangs up the call to put on lipstick in his room. And he crosses Billy Madison's name off his kill list. <laughs> and then Buscemi is the freaking hero in the movie because he takes out Eric, the sneeveling little weasel at the end of the movie. And what is the iconic line that Bill- Billy Madison says about Buscemi's character? I'm glad I called that guy. I'm glad I called that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite part. He's like, oh, don't even worry about it. Like, I'm not worried. Like, it's not even a big deal. Water under the bridge. And then he leans over to his hit list is right next to his couch. <laughs> so there you go. You got his first film with Sandler. You got the Robert Rodriguez connection. You got Tarantino. And you got the Coen brothers. So by 1995, he's worked with all four of them in something. Another Rigby favorite, John Rigby especially. John Rigby, one of our guests, his Discord name is Jerry Lundegaard. (laughs) So whenever he joins us, oh yeah, that's right, John Rigby, huge Fargo guy, big Fargo guy. What a film, what a performance as a baddie. I mean, he does this a little bit in Airheads, right? He's part of the good guys, but has kind of a turn like that, but... He is truly a maniacal little asshole in this movie. His like manic energy is what keeps you on edge in this like dark comedy, right? Because there is a lot of funny laugh out loud moments, but like you see the wheels kind of coming off already when they introduce his character and he is talking like he's coked out of his mind and going a mile a minute and he's irritated and he's furious and I think that balance with Peter Stormare's like dead, quiet, kind of like an oath that's Mm -hmm. incredibly intimidating is such a funny chemistry. I think they play off each other really well. His reaction after he gets shot in the face when he's confronting Stormare, I will never forget that scene. He's so convincing as a guy who just got half his face blown off. He's like, hey man, here's 40 grand for you. Here's 40 grand for me. And uh, how how do we get to put this car? He's like, oh, you'll just pay, will just pay me for it. He's like, fuck you, man. Fuck that. He's like, I'm not going to fucking pay you for that. He's like, I got my fucking face shot off. <laughs> I've been putting up with your bullshit all week. <laughs> I love when he loses his mind on the parking attendant at the airport. Uh-huh. And the parking attendant doesn't say anything. The parking attendant's like, hey, it's $4 per day uh, for parking. And like, that's it. And he just goes on a rant. He's like, oh, you think you're fucking king clip on tie over here? Oh, you finally have some authority in life, huh? And like, he's just such a dickhead. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. I mean, Case, tell us if I'm wrong, but I feel like Minnesota Nice is captured so accurately in that film. Yeah. Like, there's just no urgency to solve a murder ever. It's just like, hey, uh, one of the other cops got murdered. Hey, how's your your daughter? She's doing good, eh? Yeah. (laughs) And I could give you a tour of every location in that movie. Been everywhere in that movie. So it's very exciting. Very exciting to watch. I think I think this is his best movie. Ooh. I think this is the best movie that he's in. I think this movie's absolutely perfect. I think this is his best performance. I think we all know what the best movie is that he's in, but I think this is his best performance. Uh, Spy Kids 2, right? Oops. <laughs> Aubrey, I don't think you're going out on a limb by saying that. I think a lot of people hold Fargo in like the highest regard. I would say it's either that or Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Because I love both of those movies so much. I just think Fargo's an absolutely perfect movie. And age as well. 
That was such a great movie. It created spinoffs that happened decades and decades later. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a, it's really impressive, the, both the story and the, the movie, how it was made. I agree. All right, how about Carpenter's Escape from L.A.? He plays Map to the Stars Eddie, also 1996. Fun movie. Kurt Russell, mm-hmm. obviously rules. So John Carpenter's a pretty damn big filmmaker, too. Did he work with Carpenter again? I don't know if he did. I don't think so. I think this set. It was too campy for me. It was like, I know they're going for like the cartoonish kind of exploitation style movie. And I couldn't, I, I, just, it was, I was out. Who's Map to the Stars Eddie in the film? What a character name. Yeah. It had to be included just for the character name, if nothing yes. else. <laughs> out of principle. Purely out of principle. Okay, 1996. Uh, his first big di- directorial premiere was in the film Trees Lounge. So not only did he direct it, he acted in it, one of the main characters, and he wrote the film. And he filmed it in his hometown, which I think is pretty cool. It's a story about kind of a deadbeat mechanic. He plays a mechanic who takes over his family member's ice cream truck after his family member passes away. And then he basically makes a really poor decision with one of his best friend, played by one of the Baldwin's daughter. And it's like kind of a nothing film from a plot standpoint, but it was fascinating to watch, um, to see such like a personal project for him. Very, very good. Highly rated. Easy watch. Easy, easy watch. So for the Buscemi enthusiasts out there, go watch Trees Lounge. I think it's important understanding of him as a performer. Did him and Seymour have a lot of scenes together? Did they have that same <laughs> chemistry that they did in the previous one? <laughs> one scene because Seymour Cassell plays <sighs> the family member who dies. So <laughs> he's the one running the ice cream truck. And the next scene is him dead. So you get one flashback scene All right, with fair. Seymour Cassell. I was like, oh, fuck yeah, Seymour Cassell. And just as quickly as you get excited that he's there, he's gone unfortunately so i love that (laughs) entertaining nonetheless all right time to talk about a pop culture favorite in 95 episodes we've never discussed this movie which blows my the fact we never talked about airheads in 95 episodes blows my mind but in particular the fact we have never talked about con air uh, and his character of garland green is wild and i know for aubrey this was a first time watch so i think we got to give him the honor yes to bust this cap open and then we'll follow up According to the show notes, there's one movie on here that is beloved by many that I do not like very much at all. It is not Con Air, though, because this movie rules. It's so wild. Oh, okay, I was I about to. I was I almost it. puked on myself. I was. I know. Literally shaking. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's wild. None of it makes sense. I don't understand what's happening at all. I don't know why anyone makes any of the decisions they make. I don't understand anything that happens in the final third. <laughs> this movie, it's, it's it's just a blast, though. Like, it's just fun. Like, it captures that, like, 90s action movie. Like, we're just, we're just going to have as much fun as possible. Yeah. You know, to say something that's not, like, I would actually give, like, real criticism. The, the special effects aren't terrible. Like, I thought they'd be much worse for a 1995 movie about something like this. I think the plan is terrible. 
Like the the idea of having this plane is a terrible idea. Convict, <laughs> which is why I don't think it exists in real life. No spoilers, but it does go awry. There's not a lot of PhDs in the bunch, Aubrey. I don't know if you knew. I mean, no one could have foreseen it going the way that it goes. But even like just generally, it's a bad idea. Like this, pl- this plane goes awry within seconds. Yeah. Like the door closes and they start the plane, and immediately it's taken over. That's what you get, but. This is just a bad plan, like just from all sides of it. Who came up with this and who signed up for it and who paid for it? The same guy that wrote the beautiful girls. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Banger after banger over there. This movie's amazing. This is about a story of what lengths one man will go to get a stuffed bunny to his daughter. Yeah. Cameron Poe. It's a heartwarming story. No. It's the story of a length one man will go to get insulin for his friend. Insulin that's what it to is. save his friend, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's also accurate. Or a needle for the insulin. Can't leave a fallen man behind. Did you miss the part where he was an army ranger? Yeah. And the reason he went to prison for life was killing a man in a bar fight, bar fight. defending his wife's honor. All right. Aubrey, <laughs> do you not like heroes? Like, what's your what's your deal, bro? I love this movie. Okay. I'm just saying, the movie was about getting a needle. <laughs> if I was his daughter and I saw this movie, I would be furious. I've got two things to say about this movie. Number one, it probably changed my life in many ways. I can't, can't really go into that. And then number two, it has an incredible cast. And for anybody that's in this movie, I can certifiably say this is my favorite movie they're in. It's not their best role. If you're in this movie, it is my favorite movie you're in, Steve Buscemi included. Or should I say the Marietta Mangler? Garland Green. Garland Green. National Treasure. Plus Tea Time, you know? Good singer, too. Who knew? Cole Meany. John Cusack. John Cyrus the Virus? (laughs) Come on. Funnest movie. Best movie. This is probably the movie that I saw the most growing up because it was my dad's and go-to, like, I don't know, you want to just watch Con Air? I'd be like, hell yeah, let's watch Con Air. I love Con Air. (laughs) (laughs) I like, just put that on. That movie rocks. (laughs) The irony of the skinniest, smallest guy. All the other convicts are terrified. Yeah. Locked up like Hannibal Lecter. They roll him in the cart. He's got the facing on. and (laughs) He sells it as a creep. Just a creepy motherfucker. Oh, he's great. Sells it. He's it's like if we, we take your muzzle off, you're gonna play nice. <laughs> Aubrey, I'm glad you got the opportunity. Me too. Here's here's my hot take. Busemi's got the best arc of the movie, and it's a testament to his performance that by the end you are cheering for him to win at the craps table at the very end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out he's not that bad of a guy, right? He's not that bad. He just got hungry sometimes, right? All this, he just gets hungry. Who doesn't? He doesn't kill the little girl in in the bombed out pool. Nope. Right? He plays with her, shows her some guidance. Yeah, right? gets back on the plane. Right? Ends up a happy ending in Vegas for him. Yeah. Right? So he's got the best arc of the movie. There's a lot of good stuff in this time period. To James's point, he's like, I watch Con Air a lot. I watch Con Air a lot, and I watch a lot of these other ones coming up a ton too. So. Hmm. Not so much a wedding singer, but I did rewatch the wedding singer for this because I was like, I don't remember Buscemi. And he's like giving the opening best man speech at the end of the, at the start of the movie. And he shows up again at the end, but he's hilarious. Dude, that opening best man speech is so funny. <laughs> he's drunk and he is just kind of using it as an opportunity to talk shit to his dad. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. He's like, you know, why can't you be more like your brother? He's like, your brother would never beat up his landlord. <laughs> He's got that shitty hair and it's <laughs> a creepy mustache. You went from playing a cannibal to a disgruntled brother at a wedding. That's all I'm saying. The man's got range. Mad range. Man's got range. That's right, baby. But another Sandler picture. Just chalking it up here. I got another one there. And then one of his biggest ones, Donnie. Donnie! Yeah. We talk about Lebowski with Philip Seymour Hoffman. So I guess this is the second time we've talked about it. Yeah. It's been a while, but the dude abides. Poor Donnie. He does not make it by the end of the film. Kind of felt a little unnecessary but that's just my opinion poor guy i love his passing i think it's hilarious in the movie and i think he plays the character like with such like a innocence that it plays really well off of john goodman's i'm clearly about to have a heart attack like anxiety and jeff bridges like legendary the dude he's just like there and they just use him as like a whooping boy during their arguments He's literally like a bowling pin that's just taken bowling balls the entire movie. Like He never has a true moment to stand up for himself, ever. Shut up, Donnie! It's like, Donnie, you're like a child that wanders into the middle of a movie and wonders what's going on. I was watching, I was like, I feel like almost anybody could play the part of Donnie, but I still appreciate that it's Steve Buscemi playing Donnie. I agree. Not everybody could play John Goodman's character in that film. No, Goodman, Goodman kills it. Yeah. This was the movie I was referencing earlier. Oh, really? Oh. Oh, you're not a big Lebowski guy, huh? I'm not. This was one I crossed off my list probably like two years ago. Because I was like, oh, I got to see this. Everyone has talked about how great this movie is. This is like huge, big deal. Watched it. I was just like, eh, I don't get it. White people, bowling, crime, you know. I mean, that's kind of what I chalked it up to. But I feel like I chalk it up to that a lot on this. And I don't want, <laughs> I don't want anyone to like have to fill out their bingo card on that. But I was just like, all right. <laughs> This is a demographic thing. Okay. If I had to pick a bowling movie that I prefer, I'm obviously more of a kingpin guy, but Big Lebowski's pretty solid too. I mean, it's fine. The next movie, we've talked about a few times, uh, most recently in the Owen Wilson episode, but I just want you all to know that my, my girlfriend is not a huge movie person, but as you all know, what is her favorite movie of all time? Armageddon. Baby. Armageddon. Armageddon. Yeah. So when she found out we were doing Steve Buscemi, her first message to me was, "Does that mean we get to watch Armageddon?" <laughs> and she was here for New Year's, and we watched Armageddon, and it was just as good as the first time I saw it. I love that movie. It's ridiculous. It's over the top. I know Jim, our Canadian friend from the Film Rage, is not a big fan, but that's because they don't have a good. They just don't have good space program up there, and he doesn't understand it. That's exactly right, Kyle. That's how we know your girlfriend's classy. She likes Armageddon. But let's get into Steve Buscemi here. Yes. He's a genius. Because I'm a genius. Captain America over here landed us <laughs> 30 miles away. <laughs> iron ferrite. He's got a goddamn iron plate. I've seen this one before. This is the one where the coyote straps himself to the rocket and puts himself <laughs> in the slingshot. Didn't work out too well for the coyote. <laughs> oh, man. He's got all the best lines in this movie, mm-hmm. and he nails them. Mm-hmm. Yep. So entertaining in this. Even though he loses his shit at the end, he's still so entertaining. He's got the uh, the high the high voice in that one too. You know, he's just yeah, he's a pretty good singer, quartet kind of guy. He's singing again. The scene that I forgot about with with Rockhound is when they pull up to the tanker with law enforcement, and they, <laughs> Rockhound goes, "I swear, she was eighteen. I swear." And I just fucking I lose it every time. <laughs> She told me she was 18, I swear. When Bruce Willis is trying to kill Ben Affleck in the beginning and eventually 
Liv Tyler has to like give him the speech. Like I've learned about being a woman from all you guys. She's like, I learned how to use a tampon from Rockhound. And he turns around, he puts the gun right in his mouth and he's like, Whoa, uh, I, Told her I did not show her. <laughs> I told her. Why is he called Rockhound? Because he's horny. He was having a good time at the strip club, wasn't he? Oh yeah. Oh baby, I want to have babies. Oh, I love it. Carve out some time from her again. Things you love to see. All right, same year, The Imposters. He played Happy, a, a role alongside Stanley Tucci and Allison Janney. He's actually so close with Stanley Tucci that he was the best man at his wedding. What? I did not know that. Yep. Oh, shit. I wish Stanley Tucci was in the Fast and Furious universe. You definitely would have used that as a fact. Absolutely. 99, Big Daddy. Another Sandler picture. Plays the homeless guy who gets in a why. I used to use that clip for why you should ask why. <laughs> like it just keeps asking, the kid keeps asking why. And it gets to his deepest issues with his father and why. <laughs> Kills like, well, me. I guess he never really hugged me enough when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> if you shut up, I'll bring you a happy meal. <laughs> and he also has one of the funniest lines in the movie in the courtroom when he says, she'll be my sugar mama. And he goes, damn, I got to get me one of those. <laughs> He'll play these like very dramatic characters in other people's films. And then he just ends up as the most zany off the wall character in every Sandler picture possible, including the one that we'll talk about in a little bit that Aubrey got the pleasure of reviewing. Great performance. Of that. He's got a very uh, street corner fun vibe about him like you could see him hanging out on the corner with all his buddies just talking and making fun of people and hanging out and that's why he does so well in these movies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he's like the fun version of a character actor yeah he doesn't take it too serious but he has the range to do a lot absolutely if you really love him it opens up a lot of films for you as a fan because you'll see him do super serious stuff and kill but then he'll also be in a movie for 30 seconds and be just a complete ass and it's funny all right, Willennium hits. He's in Animal Factory as A.R. Hosspack. He also directed that movie, which we talked about a bunch. Seymour Cassell, Danny Trejo, and Willem Dafoe. Prison movie, pretty solid flick. Available pretty much anywhere you look. Another directing picture there. How did Animal Factory do money-wise, Case? I don't want to say it's an, not a critical failure if it is. Animal Factory had a... <laughs> did lose some money? What well, didn't do well. It had a $3.6 million budget and it world grossed 44 grand. James? You buy a nice car for 44 grand. <laughs> That's a pretty sell. You can get a Tesla for that. Yeah. Yeah. Low end, but you get Tesla. Of course, with the 3.6 million, you could have bought a lot more than that. Yes. It lost 3.5 mil. Okay. So, not the best money making film in the world, but at least it's shown up four times in Munson's universe. So, we'll give it that. Yeah. Uh, but still directing, still got asked to direct again. So do you do we think that he decided to go to the voice acting side after he got slashed up in a bar at a on a film set with Vince Vaughn? Mm, that timing does work out. Like his voice stands out very clearly as Day in Monsters Inc. and all the Monsters Inc. films as Randall, who is sniveling little bastard of a character in those movies. Yeah, Randall's the bad guy in the movies. He is rat prick <laughs> in a lot of ways. He's he's just definitely the one you're not supposed to like. If I remember correctly, Randall's the guy who can like He's like a chameleon, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a bad guy. Okay. Yep, he's a bad guy. I love Monsters, Inc. That's one of my favorite Disney Pixar films. Yeah, it's it's great. Great movie. And it works because his character and his voice lends to that so well. Just like a little, just a snake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His first real 
awards recognition didn't happen until 2001, and that is Ghost World. He plays Seymour. That's the last movie I watched. I didn't finish it, but I was watching it just before we recorded. In an interview, they asked him about Ghost World, and he said that him and the other lead would finish a, a scene, and the director would walk up to them, and, and they thought he was going to give them some feedback, and then they'd walk right by and talk to the background actors. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the main actors in there, uh, it's a young Scarlett Johansson. Brad Renfro is in there. Ooh. Lena Douglas, Tom McGowan, like some people you would recognize, obviously, outside of them. It's It's kind of a weird story. It's about these two girls who are just graduating high school, and they're kind of like anti-popular things, especially the main character. And she falls in love, essentially, with his character, Seymour, who is just like this nerdy guy who can't get a date, but he's not creepy. He's just like the nicest human in the world. I didn't finish the movie, but it was getting to the point where she's like, weirdly starting to fall for him and it's becoming pretty toxic as he actually starts to meet other people. And so he's just very like endearing and charming for being a very socially awkward guy. And so it makes sense why he got a Golden Globe nom for the movie. It's just probably not everyone's taste of film is what I would say. And then finally, Mr. Deeds, another John Turturro. Him and Turturro work quite a bit with Sandler. Uh, He plays a character named Crazy Eyes uh, in the film. And if you remember, Sandler Deeds continues to deliver pizzas to his little hut. Uh, do you guys remember what kind of pizza he likes? His favorite toppings on pizza? Uh-oh. Spaghetti and gumballs. Oh, disgusting. It's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite, spaghetti and gumballs. And by the end, he's the one, because Deeds has bought them all like Corvettes, red Corvettes. And he has the la- I think he has the last line in the film. He goes, damn, these things are fast. And as he runs a corvette into something very expensive another ridiculously stupid character from busemi and a sandler picture this is one of the uh sandler movies that i really wanted to hate and i didn't because there are some of his movies that i truly despise and there's other movies i of his i consider comedy classics and this was one of those ones where it's like oh it's pretty fucking stupid and then i watched it and was like yeah it is stupid but i think it's like held together by some of these roles and I, I Winona Ryder stands out to me. I thought she was so fucking funny in this role. I am absolutely shocked too because that was like the first time I had seen her since Edward Scissorhands. And I was like, oh my God, like I did not expect her to be this funny. Two characters stand out for me indeed. Jared Harris as the guy who runs like the the TMZ operation. I'll always remember him. And then Turturro. I mean of course Emilio. Yeah. Very sneaky sir. Largest critic gap is Spy Kids 2, The Island of Lost Dreams. He plays a, a character, a doctor, basically like a scientist named Romero. Um, and this is another Robert Rodriguez film. And he did three of these with him, I think. I think three. Mm-hmm. Danny Trejo plays the exact opposite of what you would expect the Danny Trejo character to play. You think he usually is like a deadly assassin, bad guy, but he's like the resourceful butler character. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to describe. Gotta catch you off guard. Gives them the magic, the magic bracelets. That's true. The main pieces I would note about this, and I'll toss it up to you guys. The the CGI is so ungodly bad mm-hmm. in Spy Kids too. Like that, it's distracting. And I know it's of the time, but in 2002, every green screen choice behind them is just truly awful. But it just reminds you what the filmmaking was like in the early 2000s. But I'll say I don't think Spy Kids two. I don't think any of the Spy Kids films are like 
problematic in any way, shape, or form. I'm sure kids really love him. I know, generally speaking, like critics like the Spy Kids films. His character is like this goofy scientist. His hair is disheveled. He's got these goofy glasses on. It's kind of a nothing role in a lot of ways, but he shows up in all of the Spy Kids films. So it's different. I'll give him that. My overriding thought that I'm having a hard time getting over is, did this have a 75 from critics? Yeah. Uh, yes, it did. Roger Ebert even gave it a three out of four stars. I heard somebody talking this last week, and and the line they said was, the Matrix is getting lazy. And the Matrix is getting lazy here because I had to do Spy Kids in an earlier episode, with the Danny Trejo episode. And then I was originally assigned to do that with this one. So the Matrix is definitely getting lazy. The uh, simulation is losing its juice. Yeah, I mean, Romero, exactly what you would expect out of a quirky scientist living alone on an island. The one part that I did have to double take on was he created these different animals yeah. that were like hybrid species. Like he had like a spider monkey and it was literally a monkey and a spider put together. And mm-hmm. did that just happen? Just cooking shit up in a lab case. That's right. It's not always going to turn out good. That's, ge- that's genetics, baby. He's just plot candy in this movie. That's about it. Hey, so I think you probably finagled to try to get Sam to not be able to make it because you didn't want to get stuck with another Spy Kids review because you know whenever we cover Carlo Gugino, Spy Kids 3 is going to end up being like largest audience gap and you're going to get stuck with it. Unfortunately, I had already watched this before we had gotten to that point. So I was. <laughs> if Dan Craig didn't make it, I was going to be ready to talk about it. There you go. Robert Rodriguez. He loves Antonio Banderas, yep. Cheech Marin, and Steve Buscemi. <laughs> and Danny Trejo. And Danny Trejo. One of my favorite things about Buscemi, in his career, he ends up doing nine John Totoro movies and 11 Danny Trejo movies. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about Munson crossover heaven right there. I Man. love this guy. Before our next review, we got five years worth of projects. And so that first one there is a film we talked about on the Laura Linney episode. The Laramie Project. He plays Doc. It's very well rated. It's one of the more famous HBO TV movies. And it's the true story of an American town in the wake of the murder of Matthew Shepard, which is was a real thing that happened mm-hmm. back in when, when... Early 90s. It's a litany of pretty good actors. He looks like he's second build as Doc O'Connor in the film. So I didn't rewatch it, but I know it's a, it's a pretty popular one out there. Another Spy Kids film in 2003... And then Big Fish, a movie we've never talked about in 95 episodes either. He plays Norther. I didn't get around to watching Big Fish. I wanted to, though. I like that movie a lot, and I don't remember him from that. I don't either. I don't remember him specifically, but I think there's a bunch of cameos in that because of the way the the story's kind of told. So I'm not shocked that I do not remember him in that. But I remember it being charming. Mm -hmm. That's a Tim Burton picture there. He looks like he's in quite a few scenes in this movie because I always like... Going to IMDb and seeing what I can find. Yeah, I mean, DeVito, Billy Crudup. Yeah, there's Jessica Lang. There's a bunch of different people in that movie. I remember it's him telling these like really tall tales from his father. Weren't there his father's stories, right? In the movie? Yeah. Yeah. It was a tearjerker, if I remember too. Yes. 2003, the first time he worked with Jim Jarmusch, who he's worked with a few times. He did uh, The Dead Don't Die a couple years ago, but Coffee and Cigarettes, he played a waiter, which is kind of like an. A little bit of an anthology film of just a bunch of people in Paris and like scenes where small room, two people 
talking about the most random things possible. So I thought I'd note that another the Jarmouche connection. The Sopranos. He was in 14 episodes over a three-year period. He got two primetime Emmy noms for his role as uh, Tony. Yeah, Sopranos is my favorite show of all time. And he was actually great in it. It's a very interesting character. He's introduced a few seasons in, and they do it in a very clever way where he's released from prison and he's been there for 20 years. And he's Tony Soprano, the main character. He's his favorite cousin. And so they're like the same age. Uh, he got locked up when they were kids and now he's out and he's like looking to go straight mm-hmm. and you watch him like slowly devolve into becoming a gangster because of how frustratingly hard it is to go straight after being a convict for 20 years. The dynamic he has with James Gandolfini is really fascinating because James Gandolfini's the boss now, but he still treats him like his cousin that he can fuck with and he definitely takes it too far and no one does that with the boss normally. And uh, you get to see kind of that arc take place over about uh, a little over a season. James, since he got those two noms, was it more of a, this was such a huge show at the time that pretty much anybody who steps in that kind of role is going to get a nom or did he kind of go above and beyond to stand out? I think it is that show was so huge and changed television at that time that he came in and was incredibly believable and did not take away from the story at all. And so I think it's more so of like he added to the rocket ship that was that show and didn't take from it. And so I think that's probably why they're like, wow, look, a movie star came in and it was like, you're still immersed in this world and he is, the story makes sense. And so I don't think it was necessarily that he like stole every scene that he was in. James, did he get any awards for directing a friend of mine was saying that pine barons everybody loves that episode and he was the director of that episode get the fuck out of here was he really i did not know he was the director of that episode yeah he directed a couple episodes yeah dude the pine barons episode is everyone's favorite one-off it does not add to the plot but standalone it is hilarious if you were to ask any Sopranos fans, they're like, oh, what's your favorite? They're like, well, this one, even though it doesn't really have fucking anything to do with the plot. It's, it is so entertaining. I can't believe he did that one. Yeah, he directed that one. Pretty cool. No, he got nominated for that one. Okay, that makes sense. And this is the show that started 25 years ago today. January 10th, 1999. Uh, that's awesome. It's my favorite, my favorite show of all time. I rewatched it like six times. And these are hour-long episodes, and there's six seasons. It is like the creation of the anti-hero, and it's so much fun to watch. This is the top of my list of TV, like my list of shame for TV. Oh, for real? It's like one of the only shows. It's one of the only shows that's like widely considered to be one of the best shows of all time that I haven't seen. Well, I couldn't sing its praises enough. I started it one time, and then like... <laughs> I got like five or 10 minutes in and then my wife had to take my son to the ER for something. So I stopped it and went to the ER and never came back to it. <laughs> That's a good reason to stop. I think a traumatic time. Yeah. I mean, not if it's as good as everyone says it is. He was fine. The Island. He played McCord, a film we talked about in the Jaiman Hansu episode um, with Scarlett Johansson and Ewan McGregor. So it's been a minute. And then a little pop culture piece with Steve Buscemi. Some people may not know who he is until they see the gif of him saying, how do you do, fellow kids? And that is from (laughs) his appearance in his primetime Emmy nom in 30 Rock between 2007 and 2013 in six episodes. 
That's funny. What I didn't realize is that obviously that scene became you know, viral and memeable and it's a gift people send all the time when like you see some politician being out of touch or something. But apparently the gag in the show is that it's him telling a story about his past and he just plays himself as in the past. And so it's like him remembering what it was like when he was in high school. And so it's like you see old ass Steve Buscemi and he's like, how do you do, fellow kids? <laughs> All right, well, let's get the largest audience gap, which is probably what some would consider torture. Uh, Aubrey drew this one. Ooh. And it is the 2007 classic that progressive moved the movement for LGBTQ folks everywhere. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, and he plays Clint. Okay, so let's just get into this. This is, this is a movie where Kevin James plays a firefighter named Larry who is he's also a widower and through some means that I cannot remember and I swear I was trying to pay attention he could not get his pension benefits to his kids and so he decides to exercise a loophole because domestic partnerships allow him to do this he would switch his pension benefits to his friend played by Adam Sandler Chuck and that way, Chuck could take care of his kids. They would start a domestic partnership to make sure the domestic partnership sticks when the pension office decides to inquire about their relationship. They decide to go to Canada and get married. It's like a circle. This movie, I think, may, I'm, so this is going to be the nicest thing I say about this movie. It maintains modern value. There's a reason why this movie should exist. And it's for any time you've talked to someone that was under 30 and they don't get it when we say, no, it was a different time back then. <laughs> this movie is for that because none of this, none of this would happen now. It's the best example because I, I mean, obviously I work with kids, but I mean, I, I've also talked to people younger than me and been like, no, you guys don't understand. Like we used to say that, or this wasn't that big of a deal. Culturally, this is how we did that. This movie is a perfect example of this because this movie is wrong in all of the ways. In every way, it's just wrong in all of the ways. And it's like, even it's like attempt at bringing it together and being like, nah, this isn't that big of a deal. Even that is like ham-fisted and, and kind of backwards. It's such a bizarre movie. I'm not a huge Adam Sandler fan. That's probably the easiest way to say this is I don't like his comedies very much. I think there's two that I like. Click and 51st Dates. Other than that, I'm kind of out. On that front, this movie isn't that funny. Now, you said that they tried to make Adam Sandler a womanizer and a sex symbol earlier in this podcast. Boy, <laughs> they do that in this movie. Apparently, every woman in the world wants to have sex with Adam Sandler, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, the Ving Rhames stuff is weird. I think it's funny because I, I appreciate his commitment to it. I do, too. Because he gets after it, but it's weird. But it's also one of those things where I, I like Kevin James. So, like, just kind of seeing Kevin James do a thing kind of works for me, even though, like, all the dramatic stuff in here doesn't work at all. But this movie also, there's, like, several times where I just started laughing out loud because there are bits that are really funny in the midst of just something that I really did not want to continue to keep looking at. I rewatched this and I was like ready to eviscerate it because I remember not liking it when it came out. And then I was like, I bet it aged horrifically. Uh, and it did. 
And mm-hmm. I was like, and I can't wait to like crush it. And like there, there are some parts of it that work and that bothered me more where I was like, Oh, I do. I do still hate this movie. It was not like a 14. <laughs> it's like, it's bad, but it's not like, there are some things like some parts of it that are funny. Some parts of it that do work. And then there's other parts that are like, I think this was offensive then, and it's way more offensive now. Where would you fall in the the sixty nine fourteen, Aubrey? Sixty nine for audiences, fourteen for critics. It's not a fourteen. No, it it's like thirty five. I was gonna say like thirty ish. Yeah, it's like a thirty or twenty five. Like it's one of those where I could see there be a person who really liked this movie at the time, and it wasn't problematic. And they still like it because of the nostalgia of it. I kind of get it. Because realistically, once you like strip away that kind of stuff, which is a hard thing to do, but if you strip away that kind of stuff, it's just it's a 2007 like buddy comedy. Like it's it's kind of silly. So there's an audience for that. There's a there's a bunch of people who probably really love this movie. So it's it's fine. It's a movie of a time that will never be made again. Yeah. Yep. It's like a time capsule thing. It's a pop culture snapshot of 2007. And for that, I genuinely find it fascinating for that alone. Because like, mm-hmm. even then, it's not like crazy offensive. Like it's, it goes way over, oh. over the lines. But if you were to be like, hey, I want you to see this thing so you understood what it was like, people could get through it. And that it's just like, it's a weird, I haven't seen too many movies like this. And so that ended up being my takeaway. So 2007, so next seven years for our next review, his career kind of goes to the next stratosphere. I mean, he's obviously done these a bunch of really good movies, mostly as a side character, right? A couple times he's the lead, but he gets his first real chance to be a lead in a TV show in long form as Enoch Thompson in Boardwalk Empire, a role over five years, 56 episodes, two primetime Emmy noms, three Golden Globe noms, including a win in 2011 and several SAG noms. I had never watched this before. And I watched, I think I watched four or five episodes, and he's pretty good. It's pretty fun to watch in this show. Yeah, I'll, I'll follow Case there and say I I had never watched it. I heard about it, of course, because it kind of came on right after Sopranos ended, and a lot of the actors in this show are actors from The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. One thing I did learn is that it was produced by Martin Scorsese, and the first episode is directed by Martin Scorsese, and it cost $18 million. What? Yeah, what makes this show this expensive is they did not pinch any pennies when it came to creating the set and the time period. So like every episode, every scene is as true as possible to the early 1920s. And I didn't realize that until I was three seasons in. And I was like, oh, now I get it. I was like, why? Because I thought the show was good, not great. And I remember it winning all these awards. And then I saw the awards it was winning. And it was nominated across the board. But it was winning awards that were like set design, costumes. And I was like, oh, right. And because they crush it. Um, with that. When it comes to Buscemi in this, I think I initially didn't understand his role because I was coming into it thinking he was going to be the anti-hero. It doesn't start off that way. It starts off where he's kind of like a openly crooked politician, but he's not a bad guy. And it's more of like a slow burn where he eventually becomes an actual criminal. And so that was like hard for me to kind of adjust to. Yeah, I've never seen it. 
but I remember how big Boardwalk Empire was. It was a it was an event people would mm-hmm. carve out time to watch every week. He dabbled on TV throughout his career, but he had never reached this level of like prominence before Boardwalk. Would some say this is his best performance? Um, the awards would say. I mean, he hasn't been the lead in any projects to this level. No. Like, this show is hinging on him and his performance. Mm-hmm. I think you're right, Aubrey. It's probably his best performance outside of Count Air. I think it's his most important performance, too, to show that he has that in his bag, right? Mm-hmm. That he can carry a project. That's a great point. Because without it, when you get to months of meter time, you're like, great side character and almost everything he's in, memorable. But can he lead a project more than a season, right? Yeah, he can. Yeah. And this one hit in, in all the ways. Like, it was critically acclaimed, and a lot of people watched it. Mm-hmm. And the best thing about it, since it's it takes place in a different era, mm-hmm. it still holds up. Yeah, I mean, you could watch this today, just as anybody did 15 years ago. Not many people still around who live then, you know. <laughs> we never actually talked about Buscemi's character, and I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, which is criminal if we're going to have a conversation. Oh, because yeah. His character is not huge in it. He plays the inspector who comes in to make sure that they're a gay couple. And I will never forget the scene because he just pops in. He's super sassy. He does something ridiculous and he bounces out. But the one time he takes the basketball and just chucks it and then he just cut to it, like landing on this black family's like grill and just destroying their dinner because he's the one going through their trash. He's like basically telling them their trash isn't gay enough for them Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be convincing as a couple. His mentality is perfect for that type of character they wrote for him, but he's obviously not a huge part of the story. And he leans all the way into it. Like, he goes all the way. Oh, yeah. As soon as you see him, you don't like him. And he's weird and squirmy. Like, you just... <laughs> I mean, he pushes it to the limit in the at the end in the course, and he gets you all the way there. Mm-hmm. This is one of the many reasons why I appreciate character actors. When you give them roles like this, they go all in. Mm-hmm. When you get, like, more stars, they don't always do that when they get smaller roles. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes those big ensemble movies don't work. But you give a character actor a role like this, and they just eat. So they go all in, and he eats, and it works. Mm-hmm. And so it just adds something funny and weird to this movie. It's an absurd premise, and they picked the guy that could play the most absurd inspector possible to be like, yeah, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These people are insane. Because it, it angles you to be like, well, I got to be on Adam Sandler and Kevin James' side because this guy is crazy. Uh-huh. Like, come on. Yeah. What's going on there? What kind of hiring does a pension fund have? It's a good point. All right. So another Sandler movie in 2010, Grown Ups, played Wiley alongside Chris Rock, David Spade, and Maya Rudolph. So again, continuing down the Sandler train. He's on f- five episodes of Portlandia between 2011 and 2017, so a pretty wide range there. And he got a primetime Emmy nom for one of his appearances on the show. So, again, getting, not winning the awards necessarily, other than that one that one uh, Golden Globe win for Boardwalk, but still getting some some looks for his TV appearances. Warren's favorite. Fucking hated grown-ups. He doesn't strike me as the type that would win a lot of awards, though, because he doesn't oh. strike me as the type that would go and do the things you got to do to win the awards. Yeah. He doesn't care, either. Uh-huh. You can tell he's not somebody. I mean, the fact that he did all that work for after 9-11 without looking for the spotlight tells you the guy is just like, it's a job. Yeah. I bet it, he just like, it's a job to him. Like, I don't care about winning awards. He's not campaigning like Bradley Cooper with Maestro. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't care. His nominations almost, they almost hit 
don't want to say that we'll say it harder as someone who loves award shows and appreciates these things, but it does resonate that like someone who probably I'm assuming doesn't really play that part of the game, which I don't mind if someone does, but he doesn't play that part of the game. Mm-hmm. He still gets nominated, tells you about his work because yep. that's what they're just being like. We can't deny this man. It's respect from your peers at that point. Yep. I agree. Also, hasn't everyone that's ever been funny been in Portlandia at least once? Yeah. I've never seen that show, but I feel like I need to. You should. You should watch it. It's not my favorite show, but I enjoy it. I mean, if you like Fred Armisen, it's a good time. Fred Armisen rules. Mm -hmm. As we say that, how is Steve Buscemi not on an episode of Documentary Now? Great show, by the way. Most recently talked about in the Owen Wilson episode. Another voice role, four movies alongside Adam Sandler. Again, I mean, this Happy Sandler universe. He plays Wayne in all the Hotel Transylvania films. He plays a wolf who's like an accountant who hates his job and life. So that's the kind of character he's playing. These things like print money, don't they? I mean, they just released the fourth one. I don't mind them. They're not, they're fine. They're actually pretty good. And that you guys kind of skipped over it, but grown up sucks. And that's when I was like, like now I was firmly into my, yo fuck Sandler. These movies are trash. And (laughs) hotel Transylvania came out. I was like, Oh, credit where it's due. This movie's good. Mm -hmm. And then a movie that we've talked about a few times, but we we all recognize was kind of a letdown. That's the incredible Burt Wonderstone. He plays Anton Marvelton alongside Jim Carrey and Steve Carell. A film that had so much promise, but is just okay at best. That's going to take us to lowest critic score. Oh, I won this time. And it's another Adam Sandler picture. Oh, shocker. It's The Cobbler. He plays Jimmy the Barber from 2014. So I had seen this before. If you were going to say, hey, Kyle, do you remember much from it? I didn't. The only thing I knew about cobbling is that Daniel Day-Lewis is a cobbler in his real life outside of acting. Did you guys know that? No. I think I did. That's what he does. He's a cobbler uh, when he's, you know, now that he's even before he retired. But the basic gist of the movie is a cobbler played by Adam Sandler. Uh, He's bored of his everyday life. He, He stumbles upon a magical heirloom that allows him to become other people and see the world in a different way. Are you intrigued? No. Are you excited? No. You're not. Okay, well, I didn't write that. That was stolen from IMDb, so don't blame me. Okay. The split on Rotten Tomatoes is uh, 1036. So 10 for the critics, 36 for audience. So even audiences didn't love this. Sandler plays the son of a Jewish family that has owned this cobbler business for generations, and he really has no interest or motivation to run it. You could tell he's just like, fuck it. I have to just keep the family going. You also learn his dad, played by Dustin Hoffman, just kind of leaves at some point, so he feels abandoned. When his stitching machine goes down, uh, he's forced to dig into the archives in his store and find his old family stitching machine, which he finds out uh, once he uses it on a shoe and he puts the shoe on, he then has the magical powers to essentially look like what that person was like when the shoes were made for them with that machine. Basically, he figures out this power and then does a bunch of really unethical shit with the power. Um, So basically, he's testing out this new ability of his. And um, in that, he ends up getting in a lot of crap with Method Man's character, who turns out to be this guy who's working with uh, Ellen Barkin to basically like do a bunch of dirty stuff to sell real estate in the area. It's actually not terribly different than the plot from You Don't Mess With the Zohan. Now that I think about it, Sandler's not breaking out too much there. But Buscemi plays Jimmy the Barber, who the whole film... He kind of pops in. He's a next door neighbor. He comes in and he provides just like weird sage wisdom advice. And he's a charming character. He gives advice from a place where you're like, I understand what you're saying and it's good, 
but you really don't have a place to say that because like Sandler's upset about his dad and he's constantly like, you know what? Your dad didn't mean anything by that. He loves you. Blah, blah, blah. Guess what? Twist of the film. Who do you think Steve Buscemi really is? Mm. Steve Buscemi, Jimmy the Barber is really his dad, Dustin Hoffman, who's wearing the shoes of Jimmy the Barber, who's currently in the Caribbean, but he's pretending to be Jimmy the Barber because he's keeping an eye on his son next door. Twist. You guys are fucking thrown off, I know. It's really good. Uh, The movie ends on this platitude that they kind of like tease you in like a superhero movie kind of way, that it's this like distinct honor and responsibility to walk in other people's shoes, and then they imply that there's this whole world of tradesmen with special abilities where barbers are their friends, but dry cleaners are the enemies. And then he takes them in like this underground tunnel and he has like a driver and a car and he's like taking them into the world of underground tradesmen. So what the flying fuck? I don't know. This movie's terrible. And I'm sorry I had to watch it and review it on this podcast. You buried the lead on this for me because <laughs> I was never going to watch this movie because I've, I've seen the poster and that's all I needed to see. But what I didn't know until I started looking this up while you were describing it and I didn't want to hear it anymore was that it's written and directed by Tom McCarthy. Sure is. Oscar nominated for best director, Tom McCarthy. Sure is. Oscar winner for best original screenplay, Tom McCarthy. This is the worst thing he's written. Sure is. This guy made spotlight. He he needed to not have Adam Sandler and his little cadre of people. If it was a different acting crew, I think it could have gone differently. But people are going to take a Sandler role like this serious man if you look through tom mccarthy's imdb this thing sticks out like a sore thumb i will say buscemi is lovely in the scenes he's in because he's he's a calming sage wisdom advice character and he plays it well but it's all a ruse because it's really not him it's dustin hoffman speaking of terrible movies the ridiculous six he plays doc alongside danny treo one of the worst movies that we've ever seen on this podcast oh it is what Taylor Lautner is doing on screen is an abomination to all humans ever. I'll never watch this movie. Don't. It's truly, truly terrible. Taylor Lautner is the most famous Lions fan any of us know. <laughs> that would be Keegan Michael Key, sir. No, obviously it's Eminem. Is it Eminem? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Ridiculous Six is bad. I think that had a zero from the critics, right? It did. We re- I think we reviewed it very early on, but I wasn't going to subject people to that. Buscemi has done 16 movies with Sandler. That's a lot. He's, he's tied to him. And, he's, and he speaks very highly of Sandler. He gave that speech when San, Sandler won the award, and he was like, no one's treated me better in this business than Adam Sandler. I, everybody talks about how great Sandler treats his people. His friends, yeah. I do applaud him for that. I don't love all his projects, but I got no hate for Adam Sandler. Another voice role, Boss Baby, played Francis. Which is going to get us to our last review. We save highest critic score for the end, and that is James's review of The Death of Stalin from 2017. Death of Stalin is a 2017 historical fiction slash dark comedy. It has a 95% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. This is a absolute blast of a movie. The plot follows the top Russian officials as they kind of jockey for power immediately following the death of the tyrannical dictator Joseph Stalin in 1953. This movie is actually banned in Russia because, quote, the film desecrates our historical symbols, is an (laughs) affront to Russia's World War II veterans, and portrays Marshal Zukov, 
played by Jason Isaacs, as an idiot. End quote. <laughs> that is from the Russian government to put that statement out. That's the one they're worried about? Jason Isaacs, not the son of Stalin? <laughs> well, I think the son of Stalin is very publicly known to be as an alcoholic. As alcohol, yeah, yeah, as dumb and stupid. Actually, no, Kyle, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I get into that in a little bit here. Yep. Uh, so this movie was written and directed by Armando Anucci. Uh, who is also the creator, writer, and director of HBO's award-winning sitcom, Veep. So if you like Veep, you're going to love this movie because they are very similar styles. Two things I think make this film great. The first is Iannucci's ability to balance the plot being laugh-out-loud, funny, and absurd, yet also have a genuine menace and kind of fear undertone to it. It's hard to describe, but neither of these aspects kind of like lessen the impact of the other. And I think actually kind of enhance the tone of the movie and the punchlines of the comedy. It is very clear that everyone here is afraid for their lives and that they should be. Yet <laughs> you are laughing the entire time. The second thing I think that makes this film great is similar to Veep is an, it has an absolutely outstanding ensemble cast of nothing but character actors. So Buscemi... Jeffrey Tambor, Simon Russell Beale, Patty Constantine, Constantine, Jason Isaacs, Rupert Friend, Olga Kurilenko, and that's just to name a few. Like I could keep going. There's a bunch of little side plots that are hysterical, uh, but you could tell there's a genuine chemistry of amongst the cast, and they improvise the comments and the jokes that they make at each other's expense. I'm actually going to stop now because I love this movie, and I know a lot of you guys did as well, and I want to hear your thoughts. So I'll finish by saying that if you haven't seen this movie, I couldn't recommend it more. And at a minimum, you should watch the opening scene. If you like the opening scene, you'll love the movie because that is the exact same style and tone for the rest of the film. I watched it with my wife uh, the first time a few years back, and it was a hard sell because it is about a dark, heavy topic. And 10 minutes in, you're like, no, nah, I'm going to fucking love it. And my wife was like dying laughing. So I'll give it up to you guys. And then, Kyle, I actually have an interesting fact about uh, Stalin's son that I think you'll like. I will go on the record and say this. This was my favorite movie of 2017. I adore this film. I love Iannucci's political satire. Just the combo of how they take something that actually happened and is so heavy, and they make it feel like a slapstick comedy, but buried in some really dark shit. Like, it just never lacks pure entertainment. And Buscemi is fantastic in this movie because his character, the character he plays, comes out essentially on top of all of it when it's all said and done until they tell you that a couple of years later uh, he's taken out and they pan the camera to the guy who upheaves him a few years later. So they don't even let you rest there. It's it's a awesome film and I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, so he plays Nikita Khrushchev. One of the funny things of the movie is... Iannucci doesn't ask any of the actors to change their accents at all. So he has his Brooklyn accent and Simon Russell Beale has his English accent and Jason Isaacs has his real, real English accent. And this is all in Russia. And when you see the words, they're in English, but they're in like a Russian font. So like no attempt to make it seem like these people are speaking Russian. And what makes it funny is he did that so that they'd be comfortable riffing with one another he's like i don't want you to focus on your accents he's like i want you to focus on improving jokes there's a scene where someone refuses to do something for stalin and he's like you know he's gonna kill you right and the person's like i believe in my faith and i'm confident in everlasting life i'm willing to die for everlasting life <laughs> and Bishemi's like who the fuck <laughs> who the fuck in their right mind would want everlasting life Ugh, the endless conversation awful <laughs> it's so fucking funny 
two of the more absurd scenes in the movie actually happened in real life, and that made it even funnier to me. The first one is the opening scene is, is a real thing that happened. In the opening scene, they're at a concert hall, and the concert ends, and then the, the director of the concert gets a call saying Stalin wants a recording of it. Yeah. And he, start, he starts freaking the fuck out because like it's over and they didn't record it. And so the movie differs a little bit. But in real life, that actually happened. They just couldn't get the audience to come back in the venue. And instead of two conductors, they actually had three in real life. The first one was afraid to put his name on it because he didn't say it would he didn't think it would sound good and he was afraid he'd get killed for how poor it would sound with no one there. The second person they called showed up wasted drunk again out of fear. <laughs> and so they had they had to have a third one. And when Ayanuchi read that story, he fe- he felt like that was too unbelievable and that's actually what happened. The second scene that blew my mind that's real was going back to what you mentioned about Stalin's son. When they introduce him He's drunk at hockey practice and he's yelling at the coach and he's like talking about how shitty the the hockey team is. And he's like, it's like, wow, you know, make these guys play better. He's like, well, these are the best I could do since the plane crash. And his son's like, what plane crash? There was never a plane crash. Well, he's like, Soviet planes don't crash. And Stalin's son does not fuck up. (laughs) And like, he's like trying to dead the conversation. And I looked it up and it's a true story. There was a plane crash in the 1950s of the Soviet Air Force ice hockey team. The team doctor and trainer all died at the same time, and Stalin's son was the team's like owner slash manager, and he ordered the plane to take off in an ice storm, and it crashed, and they all died. And in fearing this news, they just went out and got like people off the street to play for their hockey team, and they got waxed before anyone put it together that it's like, where are all the players? <laughs> What's going on? It's a true story, bro. I was blown away. Please, please do check it out. To round it out, a couple more. He's got a lot in here, but the two big ones to note, I don't even know if it's big, but Lean on Pete was a movie that came out in 2017. Another good, like, smaller indie flick. Uh, he plays Dell. He's a really grounded force for this kid who's getting into, like, taking care of horses. And he's just a really sweet, endearing character in that film, so I always highly recommend it when I see it somewhere. And then King of Staten Island, he plays a firefighter. He's, like, one of the firefighters alongside Bill Burr, I believe. He's the chief. He's the chief. That's right. Yeah. So going back to his firefighter roots uh, in the movie with Pete Davidson and Bill Burr, it's really about those two, but he's in his bag in that one. So Yes, he is the chief. And there is a scene where Pete Davidson has like an actually interesting rant about firefighters because clearly Pete Davidson has like experience with it. With the hockey game? And he's talking about his dad leaving him? He's like, everyone looks at you as heroes. And I just look at you as like a bunch of fucking dude bros who just want to hang out and get drunk with your buddies and like... You're adrenaline junkies, and you don't care who like gets hurt mm-hmm. uh, because you're just chasing the next thrill. And I was like, "Damn, I'd never heard that before." And Buscemi looks at him, and he's and Pete Davidson's wearing a shirt that has like a bunch of smiley faces on it. And he goes, "Why don't you just like be like your t-shirt and just smile?" And Pete Davidson goes from like being furious and he looks down. And he goes, "All right, that's kind of funny, but I'm still upset." <laughs> Definitely worth checking out too. It's a good flick, I think, in, in my humble opinion. But that's going to take us to top performances, Case. I feel like this might be kind of hard. What do we got? What did you find? So I found a list from Collider, mm-hmm. and it's his best movies. Best movies. And the article came out in March of 2022. And they are ranked one through nine. Oh. We talked about 
all of them except for one, and which is why I picked this list. I like that. Test it, Aubrey. Start us off. Argo. Argo is number five. Oh, that's right. Okay. All right. Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs is number six. What? Oh, okay. Ridiculous six. Unfortunately, didn't make the list. The dead don't die. Oh, come on. The dead don't die did not make the list. It's a good movie. Death of Stalin. People are haters on the dead don't die. I like it. It's a good movie. We didn't really talk about the movies that he's in that have dead in the title because he's also in Dead Man, which is a good movie too, but I don't think that's on that list. No. Death of Stalin. Yeah. Death of Stalin is number seven. This is a tough list because the movies that I really like him in are not necessarily good movies. No, you never know. All right, Con Air. Con Air is number eight. Ah! Nice. Lean on Pete. Lean on Pete is... Not on the list. Martin Fink. Martin Fink is not on the list. Okay. Big Lebowski. Yeah, it's got to be on there. Big Lebowski is number three. Okay. So we have a name. We have a name one or two, have we? Armageddon. Armageddon is not on the list. Uh, that's a shock. All right. Give me uh, Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing is not on the list. Wow. Fail. It's a tough list. When we go over the one we didn't cover... I'm going to read you something, why I picked it. Okay. Monsters, Inc. Monsters, Inc. is not on the list. Jeez. He's in a lot of good movies. I mean, I think that's what I'm learning. You guys are missing a, a really obvious one. And then, you know, three of them, I think Kyle mainly talked about. Um, all right, so Tree's Lounge is on there, then, is what I'm hearing. Tree's Lounge is number one. Uh, I'm telling you, it's a good fucking movie, man. I got to see it, though. Yeah, it's good. Wow. All right, so if I talked about the other one, then... Ghost World. Ghost World's probably on there. Ghost World is number two. I, Ghost World was good from what I saw. Oh. They give me Living in Oblivion. Might be on there, too. Living in Oblivion is number four. I'm telling you, dude. I watched the good one. Yes. You guys are way better than me. That would have taken me forever. Damn. And then what's the, what's the one we didn't mention? The one we didn't mention, it's called The Messenger. Mm. Primarily about Ben Foster and Woody Harrelson's character. Oh. At the end of the movie, it says, Buscemi plays a devastated father who lashes out at Will and Tony as an instinctive reaction. Usually a movie never has enough Buscemi. His scenes in The Messenger are so powerful that they're hard to rewatch. I mean, I love Ben Foster. I love Woody Harrelson. Same. I like Samantha Morton. I think I screwed it's up. Got seventy-seven Metascore. This is a good. This looks like a good movie. This is not a Steve Buscemi list that I immediately would have gone like, oh yeah. But as I was reading some of the justifications, and I, I typically like a lot of things Collider does, anyways. So I thought that was a fun list with with some discussion. I feel so validated right now because I I really really liked Living Oblivion, Ghost World, and Trees Lounge. So that's yeah. that's affirming in a lot of ways. This could have been a list from Kyle's website, maybe. <laughs> Thanks, Case. Let's get into the Munson meter. What we do, we rank every actor on a scale of 0 to 100 based on a variety of factors that could depend on the Munson, which could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, their acting range, their awards footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedic chops, box office success, and anything else that matters to us as Munson's. 
Uh, he requested it, so he's going to get it. Case, you're up first. Mine's going to be pretty short and sweet. I remember when Kyle and I were first having a discussion about this podcast, Steve Buscemi was literally the actor I was thinking of when we were talking about actors that not enough people talk about. I think everybody, when you say Steve Buscemi to somebody, they're like, oh yeah, I know him. But I really don't think that he gets enough recognition for how good his work is. I think if there's a knock on him, it's that he's probably not the lead in enough movies. You know, I don't know if that's a a Steve choice or it's an industry choice, but I don't really care. Since he's literally the motivation for me to be on a podcast like this with this type of format, and he's in so many movies that I just love and I watch over and over again, I'm going to give him a really high score. And, and early on, I gave Sam Rockwell a really high score because he cited Steve Buscemi as one of his like heroes as an actor. And so I'm going to give him a score right around Sam, but I'm going to give him the bump because uh, he, he it, to me, is where I started this wanting to do this podcast from. So I'm going to give him an 88. Good go. I'll admit, it's really hard to score Steve Buscemi. Yeah. For me. I love Steve Buscemi. I love what he represents off screen. I love that he, you know, lives in New York, doesn't seek the spotlight. I love that he's so humble, that he he doesn't look for the accolades. I don't think he actually has a ton of range as an actor, and his project choice is really hard to rate because, yeah, he's trusted by a lot of these filmmakers, but he's in so many awful films with Adam Sandler (laughs) that it's hard to forgive, right? But he's in these great indie pictures that cases affirmed for me, being like, Kyle, you're not crazy. These are pretty well rated. Uh It's it's just, he's so hard. That's why I didn't really want to go first, because I was like, I don't know if I love my score. I mean, I'm going to give him bonus points for Armageddon and Con Air, because they're great. Ridiculous Six cuts it down by one, so it's a plus one there. But his run from 92 to 2002, I mean, we talked about Jim Carrey in there. We talked about Leo DiCaprio and their runs in that time, and like how those might be unparalleled. Even though he's not a lead, those movies in there, it's just like banger after banger. So it's hard. He's just really hard for me to rate, despite being just a really fun character actor in so many different projects. So I'm going to stick to my score. Case, your 88 is inspiring, and I love it. But I'm going to stick to my 76 that I had carved out. We don't score shame around here. You know that as well as anybody. There's no no score shaming, no kink shaming. We don't do either of those. Of course, I think your score is shit, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> James. Let's see if his score shit. I wanted to wait to correct you guys on this, but Steve Boo Semi, as you've been saying it, it's actually Boo Shemi. He is a nice Italian boy from Long Island. And the reason why I waited to correct you guys on this is because he actually went by Steve Buscemi for the majority of his life until he went to Sicily and met his family and realized uh, he's been pronouncing his name wrong his entire life. And it's actually Buscemi. So uh, if you guys could just show some respect to the <laughs> motherland and pronounce his name correctly moving forward. I'd really appreciate it. James, <laughs> I respectfully disagree because I've seen that video twice now and he said that it's either Buscemi or Buscemi is what he said you're supposed to say. He said Buscemi, he just doesn't correct people. It sounds like you are discounting his Italian heritage. That's between you and uh, the people who are going to cancel you, not me. God. Yeah. Man, God. I respectfully disagree with you in regards to his range. I think he is 
one of, if not the greatest character actor. When you see him, you go, that's Steve Buscemi. He is incredibly noticeable. He has a very unique look, non-traditional actor look for an actor, and he can play slimy, he could play dark, he could play charming, he could play zany, insanely funny. I think the only thing I don't think I've seen him play at this point is a love interest, and it sounds like I missed out on a movie where he was a love interest that was great, and so uh, my score might be higher if I had seen that. And then he's a great guy. Like everything you learn about him is he's just like a good person. Uh, he's in Con Air, Fargo, uh, Reservoir Dogs. These are all classics. Sopranos is my favorite show of all time. And I finally watched Broadwalk Empire, where he is the lead, which was the one thing that I was holding against him uh, is that he didn't have enough lead roles. And he is the lead for five seasons. The only thing I kind of knock on him is he hasn't gotten the award love. Maybe it's politicking, maybe it's the roles he chooses, but I'm excited to see him become more prominent of an actor in the later stages of his career now that people fully kind of respect who he is. I'm going to give him an 84. I will bump up my score to a 78 based on your description of his range, James, because I I don't disagree. You're just pandering. There's no 8 in front of that score. Don't get don't get too too antsy. No, he feels bad about being disrespectful to Italians is what, what I'm getting at here. <laughs> that is 100%. Yes. Aubrey, round us out. Uh, I agree with you, Kyle, that this is tough. Character actors are always hard to kind of place in this. Yeah. Because it's it's range. There's range in project choice. There's range in, in what he's doing. But sometimes when you're talking about range, you're looking at things from a leading person, a person who's doing it over the course of a, a longer film. And so when a character actor is doing a small bit part in different things, the range kind of comes across a little bit differently. The thing that I consistently think about when I see these movies and I hear these conversations is he can just kind of do whatever he's asked to do. He's like a really good, solid actor. I wish I would see Boardwalk Empire. That might change my score because apparently that is his performance where he where he shows everything. The quality of his work as as a character actor and the range of projects that he's been a part of and the things that he's done, he's super memorable. I I can recognize him easily. I'm excited every time I see him and I know he's going to do something interesting. Somewhere kind of in the middle, you guys, I got him at an 80. For a world where people are constantly augmenting their faces and their bodies to look a certain way, he's made it very clear he's never fixing his teeth. It is part of his brand, and that is not a glamorous thing in any stretch of the imagination. I respect the shit out of that. All right. With that, that gives Steve Buscemi slash Buscemi, depending on your uh, proclivity and appreciation for Italian culture, uh, that gives him an 82.5, which puts him in 22nd place between Brian Cranston and Sam Rockwell. So just above the OG, slightly above. Maybe that extra point you gave him. Really just put him over the top of Rockwell. That's fitting. That's great company. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Aubrey, what has he got coming? Unfortunately and surprisingly, not much. Mm. I saw one thing, a movie called The Shallow Tale of a Writer Who Decided to Write About a Serial Killer, which I'm all in just off of the title. I'm here for kind of long, weird titles like this. So I'm here for this. The description that IMDb gives a struggling writer in the midst of a divorce befriends a retired serial killer who incidentally becomes his marriage counselor by day and killing counselor for his next book by night. <laughs> Bushimi's listed second. Bushimi's listed second. Sorry, James. Like in the bill. I'm not super familiar with anybody else in this. I've seen a couple of other people here and there. 
He's Don the Majero. biggest person that I've seen. Yeah, I've seen him in a, in a few things, but Bushimi's the biggest person that I know. I'm not familiar with the writer director, so I don't know. I'm into the plot though, so I'm into that description. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John Majero's more of a indie film. Mm-hmm. He was in Past Lives actor at this point in his career, so it makes sense. Yeah, Past Lives. Just he was in one of the best movies of last year. First Cow. He was in mm, First Cow. A lot of amazing. films like that. Yeah. Okay. So not much. We'll, you know, who knows? I mean, he's slowed down definitely the last couple of years, but mm-hmm. his wife having cancer, I think, played a big role in that as well. Who knows? He probably doesn't have quite the bug that he once had to like do all the things. I mean, I'm sure he's pretty comfortable at this point in his career. Yeah. That that many projects. Do you think his career arc is going to shift more into him being behind the camera more? I don't. Interesting. He's got some high profile directing. He's done some good writing. He's he's executive producer on a lot of shit. I could see that. I mean, he directed four episodes of Miracle Workers in the past couple of years. He directed a movie called The Listener. And he directed four episodes of Portlandia. So, I mean, he's done some on that side. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Yeah. Um, next podcast is going to hit on February 8th. We're bringing back Corey Wallace, one of our favorites. He was here previously for Natasha Leone, Aubrey Plaza, and Dakota Johnson. The wheel selected one of these five actors she chose to come hang out with us for the one for this actor. So the options are James McAvoy, Lucy Liu, Eliza Dushku, Thomas Jane, and Ewan Bremner. What do we like, dislike? James McAvoy. Jamie M? James McAvoy. I don't think I'd enjoy Thomas Jane. I, I can only think of like one or two movies of his that I liked. I think we'd be watching a lot of bad action movies. Punisher? Yeah. Yep. And like the, the Punisher movie he was in wasn't that good. <laughs> no, but he enjoyed his role on Hung. He leaned into that character. Yeah, <laughs> so would I. <laughs> he's in Jackie, right? What, no, he's not Jackie. What's the one he's... 61. 61. 61. Yeah, 61. With Pepper. Yeah, but no, it needs to be Thomas Jane. I forgot he's in the greatest movie of all time. On air? He wasn't in Con Air. Oh, he is in Deep Blue Sea. He is in, in Deep, Deep Blue Sea. He is in Deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea is my Con Air case. And it's the greatest <laughs> movie of all time. That's good. So it needs to be Thomas Jane. He's in Boogie Nights. He's in The Thid Red Line and The Mist. Those are top four. Mist is good. I was not a fan of Thin Red Line. Eliza Dushku, I haven't seen her in forever. We get a little bring it on. The new girl. See, I always think about Wrong Turn. I'm not 100% sure why that's the movie that comes to my mind, but that's the movie that comes to my mind. And I'd love to watch Lucy Liu. She's been like one of the hottest chicks in Hollywood my entire life, and I would love to honor her. I feel like she's had a little bit more of a resurgence the last like decade, too. Very interesting. She obviously did like the Kill Bills and stuff like that. Interesting career. Mm-hmm. Charlie's Angels. I had to look up Ewan Bremner. When I saw him, I was like, oh, I know who that guy is. He's actually in a lot of better movies than I expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's most known for Train Spotting. Yeah, Train Spotting's great. That's the, that's the big one. That dude can play a drug addict like no one's business. He was good in Snowpiercer also. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we might watch First Cow. There you go, Aubrey. I don't know if I've seen First Cow. Great movie. Came out in 2017. A little indie picture. Ellie Riker. And then who was the fifth one? Oh, James McAvoy. I like James McAvoy. Love James McAvoy. Okay, who do we think Corey would pick? Lucy Liu. Yeah, she's three for three on women. <laughs> so that helps narrow it down to two. <laughs> so it's either Lucy Liu or Eliza Dushku? That's my thought, yeah. Well, we don't decide. Corey doesn't decide. Dan Craig doesn't decide. The wheel decides, and we'll see what happens. 
Well, we would normally have a plug, but he's not here anymore. So no more plugs. So as always, you can catch us on Twitter or X Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Steve Buscemi? I guess you think you're, uh, you know, like an authority figure? That stupid fucking uniform, huh, buddy? King clip on tie there, big fucking man, huh? You know, these are the limits of your life, man. Is that a piece of shit? Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? The best man, everybody. Best man, the better man. <laughs> He's playing the guitar now, isn't that great? Hey. <laughs> He's doing good. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. It's because I'm the best guitar player in the world. Yeah, <laughs> self-taught, no lessons. Thank you very much, Pop.